thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 65, Act 1, Carmen Kelly, A Soft Place, recorded February 5th, 2023. Ooh, yeah, oh. I'm so damn tired of waiting. Perfect A plus B The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie But they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry, powered by A Space Between. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this indie podcast. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our global community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and head over to teachingartistry.org to access episodes, guest bios, e-zines, merch, and more. So you all know that I'm a swimmer. And one of the things we talk about with our guest, Carmen, is black people and swimming. Um, so I happen to have parents who felt, I guess, felt it was important, an important skill for me and my sister to have as a kid. And that experience of going to swim lessons and living near a public pool um, ultimately developed into my love of swimming and water play. Now I swim laps for exercise, but I also just love to play. (laughs) And for several reasons, you know, it's possible that swimming just may not be on a list of priorities for some parents. And in my quest uh, around swim adventures, exercise and joy as an adult, um, recently I've been in very actively, or not very, but I've been actively engaging in resources that prioritize black and brown swimmers or potential swimmers. And, um, you know, just thinking from a, from a professional and, uh, Olympic perspective, like we've seen, uh, more diversity in professional swim athletes like Simone Manuel and Cullen Jones. And there are definitely like pioneers that they are swimming on the heels of, (laughs) but, um, According to CBS, um, an article that I found that was from CBS News, um, which was titled Water Safety Week, um, 
there was this, this statistic that was I found very startling. So the, the U.S. Swimming Foundation found that 64% of African Americans, uh, sorry, African American children and 45% of Hispanic children, Latinx children, uh, have little to no ability to swim. Even though swim lessons happen to be, you know, a way to reduce drowning by 89%. I don't know. Maybe people don't think that this is a skill set that's necessary. Maybe there's other priorities. Maybe it's just that you don't realize that you need, it is a skill. I'm not sure. But with inequities that we know to be true um, in terms of, of many things and learning to swim that actually this group of people are more likely to drown than their white counterparts. Um, the other thing that I've been in like, you know, peripherally, uh, sort of paying attention to is, um, as, as the swim of swim as a sport, as a professional sport continues to evolve and create more opportunities for diversity. There's not, there's a slower pace (laughs) of, you know, rules as we see in a lot of different sports, right? Um, but this, there's this organization that's, um, based in the UK called soul cap and they are a swim organization with swim gear and products like swim caps for all natural and texture hair types. And their mission is we are not just a brand. We're a movement. We're on a mission to make swim for all, uh, swim for all period, uh, bringing inclusivity and accessibility to the sport we love. I love that. I love that. Um, and the idea of like building confidence in water and breaking down social barriers. And, you know, essentially they're trying to create more space for black and brown bodies to be swimmers. Um, and so they, they've been doing some research apparently, and I'm, I'm excited to sort of dig into that. And we know that, you know, the U S has, uh, a history, a really awful history actually of segregation in general. And then that applies to swim pools, public swim pools where black residents were denied access to these pools or worse. Um, so while I'm not going to go into all of the detail around their findings, in fact, I need to keep reading. Uh, I thought I'd share with you the, the primary barriers to swimming that their research study found. So I'm just going to give you the headers. Um, so there's six of them and some of them have like ampersands. So, the first one uh, on the list was inherited fear and a disadvantage. Um, the second one is pride and shame. The third one is myths and prejudice. Fourth, racism and representation. Fifth one, access. And the sixth one is hair. Anyway, I thought I'd share that with you because both me and Carmen are swimmers. And uh, I'm curious... Uh, for you, like, what are you passionate about and what are you interested in learning more about? Um, and how does that connect back to your, your practice in, in arts education or community practice? Um, for me, I think there is a connection. I'm still trying to find like clarity around it, but I think my interest in this is, is similar to my interest in the kind of work that I do in terms of lowering barriers for access around, um, performing arts right? And really finding new and varied ways that my institution can be inviting schools and by way of their uh, 
by schools, their students, to be able to engage with the performing arts um, in ways that make sense for us, seeing shows on our stage, residencies, that kind of thing. Um, anyway, so this all brings me to Carmen. Um, I've known Carmen Kelly for a long time. Uh, I will say that it was a slow burn for a while for us to start to get to know each other, but I think we really um, solidified our relationship with swimming, actually. Um, oh my gosh, and I have been like working so hard to get her onto my podcast. I believe I asked her before the pandemic and then tried during the pandemic. And well, you know what? Timing is everything now. It finally, finally happened. So Carmen is the original uh, Black Mermaid. And um, like I said, we got to, to know each other a little bit better during the, um, before the pandemic, sorry, when I belonged to uh, her gym and we would go swimming together and, you know, chat and talk and there'd be other people who'd come and join us. And she's a very strong swimmer. She gave me some great pointers in my early days of swimming. And she's just an incredibly bright light, um, such a beautiful spirit, deeply rooted in an African-American culture. And, um, it's, it's been my pleasure to get to know her even deeper by way of these interviews. So, and this first act, we learn about Carmen's current role in the field. Uh, we learn about some past projects that have deep meaning to her and her initial teaching job as a swim instructor. Here is episode 65, act one, Carmen Kelly, a soft space. Hello, Carmen. Hi, how are you? It's happening. It's finally happening. Yes, I can't believe it. How long has it been? I, you know, we've been chasing each other. <laughs> or better yet, it's been on my end where I've been like trying to get myself together so I can meet with you and chat with you. You know, timing is everything. I feel like today was the day we were meant to do this. So welcome. Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast, which is a place where we celebrate artists, culture, and equity. And you know, I've I've known you for a while, but I and I know bits and pieces of your life, but I am super excited <laughs> to to learn about your journey, um, um, your you you know your own journey. Um, this is a place where you can do some of some reflecting and introspection, uh, please. Um, but I also want to hear about you know your journey in arts and arts education and advocacy and all the great work that you've been doing over your career. Um, but let's go ahead and just start with a very simple, what I hope is a simple question about how you are doing, how your loved ones are doing. Well, um, good question, because I think we all survived. And when I say that is that we kind of came out of all of this pandemic um, better. I think the other side of that, which is really wonderful, it forced us to find ways to communicate and talk. We didn't have the advantage of traveling because as you know most of my family lives in florida and new orleans that's where my brother lives um but so all, most of my family is away i only if the most recent is my niece moving to brooklyn maybe about i think three years now she's been in brooklyn mm -hmm. but she's the closest to me now but everybody else is long distance and we would always use the holidays to get together and gather. So with the pandemic, we didn't have those opportunities. So 
and we, we started to have, you know, Christmas via Zoom, um, birthday parties and um, all kinds of celebrations that we would normally get together, see each other and all of that. We even took it because I'm a Southern girl. We took it so far as to, okay, what are you making? So we can look at it. We're not going to be able to taste it, but we can look at it. Okay, who made the collard greens? Who did this? Who did what? Which was lovely. I mean, um, it was it was a form of staying connected. Um, so out of that, it's nice to be able to travel again, um, to have the option to go see each other and be together with each other, which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, but it also is, is lovely to know that things have changed that if you can't get someplace you have, you could, well, let's see if we can, you know, do a video, you know, do that, you know, look at you and I, because at one point I think we were going to do our interview face to face and, you know, here we are. So there's some, there's some jewels that came out of that. Um, so to answer your question, everybody is finding found kind of found their niche out of everything. So we're good and I'm good and I'm happy about that. Excellent. Um, so where, where are you currently, what is your current role within arts education? Currently I'm working for an organization, um, NIA, which is Community Services Network. They're based in Brooklyn and they have been doing the work in after school for well over, I want to say, 25 plus years for, I mean, very, very, very long. Mm -hmm. um, I think the organization, from what I, I know, the mission when it first started was to create programming to get kids off the street, to address like gang violence. Mm -hmm. And some of those early things that happen start to formulate into creating after school programming. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting how I came to this job because when I left CAT, I started working part-time at the leadership program, mm -hmm. doing professional developments and that sort of thing in their after-school programming and that sort of thing. And I ended up at the school PS 190. And the principal, you know, um, I make a joke about it. I say she bamboozled me, <laughs> but not really. She loved my work. Mm -hmm. And when she decided to go with NIA, as um, her CBO, community-based organization for mm -hmm. her after-school programming and her school, she really wanted me to head it up because she was with leadership before and she said, I'm moving to NIA. Mm -hmm. um, they're gonna be our community-based organization. I want you to be the director to head up this after-school program. Are you willing? And I told her, I said, yes, I think I'm willing. I said, maybe I'll do it for a couple of years. Um, because the commute is so far mm. and I haven't traveled all over the borough like that since I was in my twenties, when I first landed in New York, because mm. the commute is an hour. However, I run the after school program. I am the director. I hire the teaching artists. I train the teaching artists. I've created a program that includes, it's inclusive of the teachers that are on site um, which is wonderful. Um, also, I have a huge connection with the community there. So parents are involved. That's a part of my um, portfolio, making sure that I'm doing programming that includes the parents 
um, once and at least twice a year in some sort of innovative way. Um, so primarily that's kind of what I'm doing now. That's Monday through Friday, I'm there. And it is in the afternoon, it's after, it's after school hours, it's three hours every day. Mm -hmm. um, the structure of that, um, which is a little different from how I would do my arts and management and all of that, where it was all theater-based. Mm -hmm. I've included other disciplines as well, like physical education. Um, I've also included um, dance that is there. Definitely theater is there. Um, I've also included literacy that is there. Um, so it's all those different disciplines to come together. And um, I've really made sure that the structure of that day is set up like theater structure because oh. the kids do homework. So I have my teaching on it. You've got to make homework exciting. It can't be them just coming in, sitting and doing homework. Mm -hmm. How, what is going to be the opening thing? What kind of activity are you going to do them and get their brains moving? Because they're coming from day school and they come right to us immediately. Mm -hmm. There's no break in between. And I always also feel that, I mean, that's one of my, I insist that my teaching artists always have something prepared that's fun, that's exciting, that's engaging to get them going before they sit down to now be in their mind and in their brain trying to finish, complete their homework, which is exciting, mm -hmm. you know? So it's that, that is one space that I can really kind of throw in my theater activities, which I've trained them to do and fun things to do. Um, more recently, we have done um, this thing because we've been having conversations about um, black and brown boys and how they see themselves. And um, there was a, a video like I, I think I shared with you that was going around where um, it was so touching and so powerful where these young little black boys are looking in the mirror and they're saying what they like about themselves. I said, oh, that would be great to do. So I decided to say, ask one of my teaching artists, I said, let's try this with my fourth graders. So let's try it. So not only the boys, let's just do it with everybody. So before they come into the classroom to start with their homework, she has a mirror and they're now reflecting on what it is that they really truly like about themselves. The first time they did it was very challenging because they kept saying what they're good at versus what do I like about myself? They had to take a moment to breathe. And it's very interesting to think about the fact that um, it's hard for young people to sometimes to find language to express how they feel. This is where the power of theater kind of comes in, even though they're looking at a mirror and it's that, but it's some form of stopping in that moment to have that reflection. And it's gotten better. Now they're all excited. They've done it for like four times now. Oh. They're excited about it. They come in <clears throat> and they're bringing new things, new creative things. And we're learning too. It's allowing us to assess where they are, mm -hmm. what they like about themselves, what we didn't even know. Yeah. So that's been very wonderful and very powerful. Um, little things like that. I'm always trying to find ways to infuse theatrical or theater games and activities 
wherever, all throughout those three hours that we're working with the kids. You know, even in the physical ed place there talking about, you know, um, what does it mean to be physical? You know, before you jump into the sport, what are the things that we can do to loosen up the body, to get things moving, that sort of thing that could be fun for them. You know, um, let's try those things first and then move into the discipline of the sport. When you told me about that originally, and even now I was thinking how hard that exercise would be for adults. How often from a societal perspective, are we asked any human to, or given like any sort of space to say, you know, name things that you like about yourself and how challenging that first round might be for many people. And then you layer in, you know, the intersectionality around, you know, young people, yes. kids who are black and brown. Um, you could probably layer in the gender, the gender expression around that, right? Like how many, you know, the thing that I, that's rattling around my brain right now is adults suck in general. Like I hate adults, you know what I mean? I mean, that's not true. I don't actually hate, but like there are some really like, we're not really nice to each other as a whole, right? And then, you know, you find some people who, you know, are, are somewhat nice to you or you and you care about to sort of build your community out. But in general, like humans are not very nice to each other and we're not really good to each other. Um, and what I've, what's been rattling around my brain is how can we create opportunities for young people to, to see that adults care about them, that adults want, uh, want to, you know, celebrate their voice and their, how they express themselves when there's so much in the world and in school that is telling them that they can't be themselves. They have, in order to succeed, they have to change something about themselves or many things as opposed to meeting them where they are and expanding how, how what they have is how they will succeed, that they have the technology. They just don't necessarily have the experience and there's here's an experience that could help build out what you already have. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's, I mean, I think that the people, I think people in our field think like that, but this is the thing that's been like, how can we actually center that idea of care as a framework? And I think maybe, you know, I'm not, I'm not educated deeply in like healing work. So and healing engagement work, but, or healing centered engagement work, but I feel like that's probably some core tenets in there too. That's not exactly what I'm talking about though. I think that would be that, that kind of work would be a part of, or could be a part of this, what I'm talking about, but just the, like, it's not just like, I just care and that's it. But like, if you center the, the kids and you think about, like you said, like I'm thinking about the art form, there are multiple art forms, but there's, and there's ways to, to leverage those art forms as a way to care for the kids. Um, and then there might be a particular, um, project that you want to work on. And then that's another layer, but it's always like, how do we build these different opportunities centering care for these young people? Well, you know, it's interesting because the first thing that comes to mind when you say that are two 
distinct projects that I worked on. Mm. And at the core of it was that whole idea of centering the young people at the base of it. The first one was at Preston High School. I devised this mentoring project where the high school students mentored the elementary students, all girls. Mm. And it was all girls. It was framed in the agenda where it would be all girls. And at the height, and it was teaching artists going in, mm -hmm. creating structures that address that. And every single day was a paired kind of thing coming in where it was paired up. And these young girls, the, the elementary age girls were, they loved it. You could see it them being extraordinary excited about it. I'll never forget there was a moment when, you know, the activity of building a machine, right? Mm. And um, one of the high school girls, she's, you know, started, she was like telling the teaching artist, I wanna do the machine. Can we do the machine? I wanna do a love machine. Mm. Courtney, they started <clears throat> this love machine. And it was so incredible. Just that moment, you could see where there was not only that kind of love, but that kind of healing, that sense of expression mm -hmm. and the kids knowing that they mattered, yeah. they were important. It was so genuine and truthful, but it was because the idea going back to what you said was every day we would talk about how do we let these young girls know how important they are, mm -hmm. we care about them, and that they're magnificent just as they are. Mm -hmm. And we would go in and every day that kind of, like you said, a framework, it kind of was in the structure of every time we devise something, we were looking at, okay, we should do that there, let's structure this there and let's do it. It worked very well. I did that for about a year at Preston High School. The other piece to that is the, one of my most favorite projects that I had at the creative arts team, which you know I spent well over 22 plus years. Oh, we're gonna get into it. One of my favorite, can I talk about my favorite project? Mm -hmm. This is one of my favorite projects, which was Project Change. And it was creating a mentorship where the teaching artists train our change agents mm. to create theater pieces to address HIV um, and AIDS and also to address quote unquote um, where relationship violence connected to that. Mm. How, what was the connection of that? Wow. And the reason why it was one of my most powerful and exciting projects, I handpicked every one of the students from Mega Edwards College mm -hmm. and York College. So it came from, I had 10 students from one, 10 from the other, in total 20 students. And the goal at that time was to hire teaching artists to work alongside of me and set up in a way to mentor them to mentor them to develop this work, to learn about this work, to expand on this work, to take it further, 
but to be the the voice and the reflection of their own communities, you know, because at that time, um, DOH was looking at the rate of STDs in those communities was off the chain. It was so high. DOH's Department of Health? Department of Health were looking at, you know, STDs like chlamydia and what have you mm-hmm. with same-sex partners that was just off the chain. And most of those communities were West Indian communities that also already had a stigma attached to even talking about HIV and AIDS. So we had to break that barrier down first. And then we had to try to figure out how can we create models that would be able, fluid enough to address those issues and fluid enough that people were willing to now talk about these things and be honest about it. And we got the community involved. We even got the health centers that were in the area involved, got the entire school involved, very powerful project that I worked on. But at the crux of all of that was the care, caring about my college students that were now working at CAT, being a part of CAT. And um, knowing that we cared because not only with the stuff that we created, you know, there was the moments of teaching them how to write a resume, showing them, you know, um, possibilities of jobs beyond that, going to um, their college fairs as well, Um, you know, having conversations that dealt with things that were happening in their households, you know, all of that came out of a lot of that brainstorming and things we would talk about and deal with and, and go to. So, there's something very wonderful about setting up structures that allow for the young people, yes, for sure, to be at the center of the work, but you're also thinking, how can I every day let them know that this is a soft place to land Ooh. or you can come and talk to me? I'm here, you understand? I love that that idea this is a soft place to land because their world is so chaotic a lot of you know our young people we see them and the world is so chaotic I mean I can talk at length about the kids that I serve right now their K through fifth grade I can talk at length about my students that stand out knowing that in their environment the demographic of where I'm located, you know, PS 190 is in Brownsville. Um, it's, you know, the demographics of where I'm, where I'm located. I know the parents that single parents, you know, not a whole lot of resources that they've reached out to it. It's not that there are not resources there, there they are, but just being willing to reach out to those resources, you see that they come in with a lot of that baggage, a lot of that stuff, you know, um, and it's so, you know, what they're doing is becomes remote that taking a moment to let them know, it's almost like, Courtney, I have some kids that will not even look you in the eye. They look, cause they're so used to looking away because of fear, a lot of things or not knowing or feeling that maybe looking at someone, I know in certain cultures that's, it's, it, you know, um, it's seen disrespectful, mm-hmm. but how warm and 
inviting it is when you can look eye to eye with a kid and letting them know that, yes, we care about you. We're going to have a good day today. This is what we've got planned for you. This is what we're going to do. You know, and if you feel a certain kind of way, let's leave that outside. Let's come in and have a, and let's see how we feel afterwards. Because mm -hmm. we do take a pulse before the kids leave for the day, just to find out that reflection kind of thing, find out where they are mm -hmm. from when they come in in the beginning and then when they leave. So that helps us come back and reflect on, mm, okay, that worked really well. That worked really well with the kids. We tried this and we did that. That worked well, or, you know, you threw that out. Oh, that wasn't good. <laughs> so I want to take us back now. And again, yes. I promise we will talk about cat, but I want to, I want to, I want to get to, to the, to where we, where you started. And then yes. we'll get into that because I know that's a huge part of um, who your work and where you worked and, and the and mark I'm sure you you've left there. So you said that you're you're a Southern girl. Where yes. did, where exactly did you grow up? I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. What was it like to grow up there? You know, I I loved it. You know, and having lived in New York now for all the years, I've you know I'm a New Yorker now. Mm -hmm. I actually put my foot down in New York um, when I was still an undergrad at Spelman College in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. The first time I arrived, I came, I was still in my junior year. And it was just me discovering whether or not I wanted to come to New York or not. But going back, the things that stand out mostly for me in my growing up was, first of all, you know, um, there was a lot of art and culture in my growing up time. You know, my mother was in a black dance troupe back in the day. Ooh. And I think, I don't even think they called it black. I think it was Negro dance group back then. So my mother was a part of that. And in the Southern tradition, all the girls in the family learned to play the piano. So I play piano. I also picked up violin when I was in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. So I play violin. Um, but there was a lot of art and culture around me constantly because there was that love for music, for sure. Um, there was that love for going to see performances, the, the ones that came to Jacksonville to make sure you, you saw them. So it was kind of a, a it, was, it was twofold. It was sports and the arts, and those two things came together. Mm. And it was because I was from a family of two, my brother and myself is just two, my mother made sure we did everything. And I'm almost sure, as my mother would say, I was five kids in one. I was one of those inquisitive kids mm -hmm. where I did everything. And, you know, it's like, you know, when, when school was out for the summer, you know, I didn't have a summer break like all my friends had. My summer break was like maybe one week. And then I went to summer camp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After summer camp, I went to the library the library that had the summer program. From that, I went to Bible study from Bible study. And so there was no downtime for me to have fun and just be crazy. And no, one week, that was it. And was that your choice? My or mother's choice. Mm. My mother's choice. She was like, oh no, you gotta, we, we gotta keep you busy. You yeah, gotta do busy. things. 
you got to stay busy. You got to do things. And, and I loved her for yeah. it, though. Mm -hmm. As I go back and reflect, I love, because when I did the library thing, I mean, I won all kinds of awards because, yeah. um, you know, it was a competition to read. How many how many books can you read in the summer? So, you know, I was, re I was reading. I got my read on. <laughs> but what was beautiful about that, too, is out of that, I one of the things that happened is I fell in love with language. Mm. I love language, you know, I fell in love with poetry. I was reading all kinds of things. I was, it was a way to expand outside of Jacksonville to know that there were other places and other environments and other things to live. And that's one of the things I really, really loved. You know, I was one of those kids, I would have my mother buy me a, an oil paint set. I was 10, I'll never forget it. And I think I used the oil paint set for literally maybe, maybe three weeks. And then I got bored and I was ready to do something else. So I was that kind of kid where my mother knew she had to constantly mm -hmm. do, you know, keep me moving and keep me involved and that sort of thing. Um, I do remember that, and I have to go back, this is the power of the black church. Uh, a lot of my speaking and artistic development and expression mm -hmm. came out in my church. Uh, which was St. Paul AME. And AME stands for African Methodist Episcopal, which is like the first secular religion for African-Americans. The, the original church is in Philadelphia. Um, but I remember in the first role that I played, the, my first acting role, I played Mary in a Christian Christmas play. And I had no words. I just pantomimed everything. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother was the narrator <laughs> so it was very interesting I remember that being draped with the little thing like little Mary and it was so cute <laughs> but in church I got a chance to really express myself because I was always doing poetry and reciting all over Jacksonville you know, the creation by James Weldon Johnson, um, you know, the house by the side of the road, um, that poem, that beautiful poem, um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poetry that my aunt and my mother loved. Um, all of those different pieces of text and literature that uh, my aunt and my mother really, really loved. And my mother found that I had a, a gift for, I guess, reciting and finding and loving language. And I remember standing on the table. That's how, we, and my mother would stand away. So I would learn to project my voice. That's how it, was very, it was very cool. My mother said, okay, now I'm gonna go over here and let me hear you read that second part, uh, you know, recite the second part again. <laughs> and I loved it because it was, it was, I got my mother's attention, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, like I said, I, I, I somehow or another love the language in my mouth. I love to be able to, to the syllables and say things and, and speak and do things, you know, that sort of thing. And then I guess I got, I fell in love with the audience of applauding me, you know, when I, I would perform in church, you know, all the, the deacons and the deaconess and the stewards and the stewards, you know, they loved, they would be like, you know, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> that sort of thing, which was wonderful. But I, I just remember, you know, I'm, I'm getting giddy just thinking about it and talking about it because, you know, um, you don't realize the impact, you know, when you when you when you're young like that, um, how how magical those moments were. Those were magical moments and connection with my mother that I really, really loved. And I always used to say, I think this was, I'm living vicariously. I think these are things my mother did or my mother wanted me to do and all that sort of thing. You know, these are things that she really, really wanted to do. But I was, I was very involved, you know, like I said, that whole connection and I had a recital, a piano recital and, um, you know, I'm a swimmer. So um, sports came in, it was either one or the other, where, you know, on, on the scale that rated high in our family, very, you know, yes, you can do those things. Yes, you're going to do those. Things. Anything that had to do with those very much involved. Mm. I remember I started to love basketball. And, you know, my dad was a great basketball player, unfortunately. Mm-hmm during that time it was segregated in the South and he never got an opportunity to play basketball on a higher level, a collegiate level or anything because they were not, they were not seeing black athletes. Um, and he told me this story a long time ago and I was like, really dad? You know, he's like, yeah. So my father was very instrumental in giving me that. It was in his DNA. I went to school one day in, my, in, in high school and came back and my father had poured cement in the backyard and built me a basketball court with a net. What? Like well, he yes. built it for you? It wasn't like your driveway. It was, it, it was, no, there was, he put it like a driveway, like a block with the cement. Him and I guess some of his friends and built it out. It dried by the time I got home. Mm. And I, I was just, I fell in love with my dad. I was like, ah. <laughs> so I was, I was like the popular kid in the neighborhood. Cause now I had a court with a cement court and not the dirt and gravel that we were playing in before. And everybody came to my house to play. <laughs> so that was, I loved it. Um, and out of that, you know, um, I played, I played basketball. I got a full scholarship to Albany State. Yes, I did. And I didn't take it, Albany State, Georgia. I went to the school and everything. And, and I was like, mm. but you have to understand, Courtney, there was no WNBA at the time. So I didn't see a future beyond that. And most of those, most of the women that came out of high school during that time that really, really were had skills were going to Europe to play in the European leagues. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go there. I was like, you know, probably had there been a WNBA at the time, I might have had a totally different trajectory of my life. So what what decade was this? This is the late 70s, early 80s. My my story is a little bit different, but like the the arts always being around, that was a big thing. Sports was not a huge thing in my family. My dad was a track runner, but not like he didn't, you know, he wasn't by the time, you know, he wasn't in that kind of shape or that kind of sport sporting guy uh when I was born uh, and, and growing up so I didn't become sporty or really get introduced to playing sports until I moved to a certain neighborhood where all the kids were on all these leagues and very very athletic and I was like 
if I want to hang out with anybody, any kid on this block, I better get it together. So I like took it upon myself to like do drills, to learn how to catch, learn how to bat, learn how to do whatever they were playing. Um, So by the time I got to high school, I was more open to playing sports because of that experience, I think. But nobody was like, you should do this. I I was, I was that kid who was just like, I think I want to do that. So I'm going to just do that unless there was money involved. Then I would tell my parents and be like, can you, can you sign me up for this and pay for that? Thanks. Um, But where I was going with this is that my dad also grew up in the South um, and the segregated South and, and um, integrated his college campus, which was Spring Hill college in Mobile, Alabama. And the idea of sports, like, because he, he ran track for the college, like he got a full scholarship, but I think it was an academic one, but they were also excited about him being able to, to run track, uh, as well. And just like that idea of, you know, there being a trajectory through sports, but not necessarily, you know, being able to, to see, you know, uh, uh, beyond that or have opportunities because it's not it doesn't exist yet is is interesting to me can we but the thing that I remember also is that he couldn't swim but we had every summer we had a pool pass and we got a family pass so me and he was determined like he signed me and my sister up for swim lessons my mom could swim and I wasn't a I wasn't a very strong swimmer but I loved being at the pool I loved spending all that time in the sun and just, and there was such, you know, at the time for when I grew up, the autonomy was huge. Like you would just be like, we know where you are. We know where to find you be there. And if you're not, then you're in trouble when I come. And if you're not there, you know, so there was this whole like summer life that we had where me and my sister would go for our lessons and, and they would go from 10 to 1045. Then you had to leave and you had your pass. And then at 11 o'clock, the gate, you know, they would open up and you'd find your spot and you sort of scalp, scope out. And then you just be there for the entire day. Um, and there was adult swim at two o'clock. So all the kids would have to, that's when you had your lunch and you go play on the beach. Cause it was also a part of a park and there was a beat, a little beach. So you go play and then you finally come back or you'd you know sit on the edge and wait, <laughs> depending on whatever. So they had yeah adult swim at two and four I believe, and then at after six, you 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 couldn't anybody under eighteen couldn't be there without being accompanied by an adult. So my parents then this is what my my mom would come and swim laps, and my dad would come and socialize, and we'd be there <laughs> and until like seven thirty or eight, and then we'd go home and eat dinner. And it was like the best, the best. It was absolutely the best. So, so, you know, we both, I have often like tagged you on my social media posts about CJ and DePool. Um, But tell me about swimming for you. Like what, what was that all about? You're going to love this story. Okay, great. I was about five and I terrified my mother. She was bathing me in the tub, you know, five years old, what, you know. And um, I may have been a little younger. Maybe I hadn't turned five yet. Maybe I was like four and a half, going to be five. And I guess this was another part of my early dramatic role where I laid like a little bit under the water, not completely under the water. Like I was not breathing because she took a moment to step away to get something and to come back. And, you know, mother, I guess she was like, and when she came back, now she shared this story. I 
fighting her so bad. And I started laughing when I got up. I said, mother, I was only kidding. <laughs> she said, you are going to learn to swim. Granted, there was a pool at Washington Heights. I remember the name of the pool. And mind you, pools were still very much segregated in a sense that you could go, but you were not welcomed. Let me put it like that. There were only one, two, I think there were only two, three, because it was a YMCA pool too, three pools in Jacksonville that African-Americans could go to and they felt okay and they felt safe and all of that. The one in Washington Heights was where they did swimming lessons. My father paid 50 cents every day in the summer for my brother to go and not for, for us to go. The sun was so hot. My father stood in that sun and watched his two kids swim. Every now and then the ice cream truck would come by. You know, he would get ice cream or whatever. And, but he did that religiously. I started, that was my early days of learning to swim. I remember one day, this is why as a, when I, later on, when I became a swim instructor and a lifeguard and all of that, I promised myself I would never do this. I remember one day sitting on the edge of the pool, the teacher in the middle, and he had favorites. He would take the favorites down and do lessons that my back was quite a my back was 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 so hot from the heat i got up i left <laughs> i went to my father i said daddy i want to get in the water he won't let me get in the water <laughs> so you know what happened the next day my mother you know you don't mess with your, you don't mess with, with miss marguerite's children my mother came and she spoke to him and she said, you know what? I think I'm gonna change instructors. So my mother actually moved me to Coach Walton. As a matter of fact, Coach Walton was, um, his wife was a nurse. And at the time my mother was a nurse and knew they knew each other. So I got moved to another class. His daughter was the same age as I was, Patrice Walton. And we became the best buddies. Hmm. I swam in my very first swim meet when I was five. All I had to do was 25 yards, just jump in and go to the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My first, I was the first and I got my first little award. I was a tadpole and I got the award, but my mother that was in the audience started to jump up and scream because she had never seen me jump in the deep water. Mm -hmm. And my father said, Marguerite, she does that all the time. She's always in the deep water <laughs> because he was the one that right. he could see your progress. He, right, he saw the development. He knew that I was safe. I was fine. My mother, it was so hilarious. It was so funny. He was like, Marguerite, please sit down. Say she's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's good. So those, that was my early days of learning to swim. And every summer from then on, I swam until I got to the age where I was a junior lifeguard. Mm -hmm. I, from being a junior lifeguard, I became um, 
beginner swimmer instructor. These are my early days of teaching and learning and being able to do that. And I was young. Yeah, I was a teenager. Uh I was in high school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I started teaching um, uh, beginner swimmer classes. Then after that, um, I got my WSI water safety instructor as a lifeguard, a full lifeguard, you know, at that time, which was great. And I loved, and um, I used to teach adults to swim. I had a group of six black um, police officers who had to learn how to swim because they were trying to um, eliminate their jaws because they couldn't swim, but they were not providing them provision to learn how to swim. Hmm. And they came to my pool and I was, that was a mission for me to teach them how to swim. And I did. Um, I went from that to being a coordinator of running a pool programming at a pool myself mm-hmm. and training the other and hiring the other lifeguards to work alongside of me. And this is all, all of this in my, you know, my high school days. It was, and it was my way um, of having extra money mm-hmm. to buy clothes. Mm-hmm. And I made pretty good money. I was making $6 an hour, Courtney. That was hey. affected. Oh, yeah. In high school? I, that's a lot of money. I mean, my first my first paid job outside of babysitting was at a bakery. I was making four dollars four twenty five an hour. And you know, that was in the nineties. So Yeah, that was okay. big time. Oh. Then the pool started to spring up different places. Ah. You know, the it and culturally it changed. Yeah. You still had um some of your places that were still further out that was still very, very, very white. And you could go, but you didn't necessarily feel comfortable going. You understand? Yeah. There's a certain kind of feeling that you get when you know you're there. And and I'll add this story to that. While I was, um, I spent a bulk of my training at Emmett Weed Pool that was located in the heart of the projects. Mm-hmm. And if you know, you know about projects, projects in the South are a little different than the projects in New York. But the same kind of thing where it's subsidized housing, it's, you know, the high rise, whereas in the South, it's not high rise, it goes out. (laughs) It goes out that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, but it was a very poor area. Mm -hmm. So the pool was like a luxury in those areas. And the kids used to come and swim. And believe me, I had hundreds of kids in the water at any given time. I mean, hundreds and hundreds in the water trying to cool off Mm -hmm. from the Florida heat. And all the way to the point when we closed, I used to ride around there because, you know, I had the little baby kids that would cut the fence and get in the water. So there was a fear that, you know, drowning incidents happening, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And when I went away to college, you know, like while I was still warm, my mother used to circle around to make sure the kids were not sneaking into the pool and, you know, looking at the water, getting in, going through the gate, cutting it, you know. And I I understand it, you know, I didn't like it, but I understood it because Mm -hmm. it was so hot and that was a way. But I want to share with you my... I had a little, I don't know if I ever told you, did I tell you about my swim team I had? They were called Kelly's Goldfish. And they came from 
the kids that were really good swimmers that were coming to my pool. I trained them, I did everything with them. And I didn't have a lot of money, but I was able to get them cute little t-shirts that said it. Kelly it was a fish bowl on the front with a little fish in the middle, Kelly's goldfish. They were blue and the writing was yellow and the little flip-flops and, and what have you. So here's the thing, you, you're gonna love this. I, have you ever seen that movie Pride? Yes, yes. That, that, is, my, that is my story. Mm. Totally and completely, and I'm gonna tell you what happened. So my father had a station wagon and I would ride in the station wagon. It was kind of like the left down to everybody gets a little doohickey to drive and what have you. So we had a swim meet on the other side of town in the white neighborhood at this very fancy pool. All my kids are together. We're gonna go, we're gonna go to the pool to swim and we're talking and what have you. We get to the pool. Courtney, my kids look like they're terrified. I could see it in their eyes. We're getting ready to do the huddle, like one, two, three. Yes, you know, the huddle. I could see the being terrified. I said, oh my goodness. They are so nervous. They are scared as they can be. I said, come on, let's get in the huddle. I said, listen, for every blue ribbon you get, I said, Miss Carmen is going to buy you a Whopper from Burger King. Their little eyes lit up. <laughs> when I tell you the minute my kids hit the water, they were on and popping. Mm -hmm. We took all their hardware <laughs> and they were all dressed in their fancy Adidas um, swimwear, jock, they pulling off. We just got our little t-shirts and our towels and their little flip. We look neat, <clears throat> but we turned it out. The youngest on my team was about, I think she was seven. Courtney, she swam so hard, she didn't even breathe. She had a 25 yards and she, <laughs> she when she got to the end, I says, baby, why didn't you breathe? She said, no, Miss Carmen, I had to get to the end. I had to get to the end. <laughs> but we get back into the blue wagon, the blue goose, as I called it. And they had their blue ribbons. We had our trophies. Because, you know, I was in everything. I put my kids in everything. I was signed up, had them sign up. Okay, no, we got somebody doing the IM. Yes, we got somebody doing it. Yes, I got somebody doing that. Yes, everything. Mm -hmm. Every competition, I had one of my kids swimming in it. Mm -hmm. We get back and the little one says to me, Miss Carmen, I got three blue ribbons. Do I get three whoppers? <laughs> <laughs> but it was so beautiful. The pride that they had leaving that swim meet, the look on their face, the ribbons that they got, and the money, I had to go to, I had to actually go home and get more money from my parents. Cause listen, I spent well over $200 plus, but cause a promise is a promise. I could not back down on that <laughs> to honor it. I had to go get what they wanted and let them get whatever they wanted. And you know, that was to them, that was the goal mm -hmm. to get the burger. <laughs> we got to swim to get the burger. 
And then, you know, as I was driving, I was talking to him about um, how they felt and that sort of thing and what, what it meant to them and what it meant to me and what it meant to, and my little one that was so young, she wore that little ribbon on her swimsuit every day to the pool. Um, so I finally had to tell her, I said, sweetie, you're going to let the water, it's going to get rusty. Let Miss Carmen keep it for you over here. Because mind you, um, before they went, some of them didn't have swim caps. I had to go buy swim caps for them. You know, had to go ask the mother to please give them permission to go to this swim meet. I promised them I, that I would bring them back safely and that they would be okay and stuff. But that was where, that was my early yeah. foundation of teaching and learning. Yeah. And really, um, learning to center young people at the heart of whatever it is. And that was a moment there that I had an indelible mark on me. I still think fondly of that expansion and how many, I taught hundreds and hundreds of kids to swim. And I had a mission at the time to teach as many black kids to swim. Thank you for listening to episode 65, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Carmen Kelly, A Soft Place. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Find us on Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Potty channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.